right, Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 24. This is where we are now. This is the seventh lesson uh, from the book of Romans. And having introduced the theme of the revelation of the wrath of God back in verse 18, and having given the reasons for the wrath of God in the next several verses, Paul now moves to a segment of this book that deals with the results of the wrath of God. What we're seeing as this chapter unfolds is the progression of sin. First men suppressed the truth about God. First men ignored the existence of God. And as a result, when they begin to act as if there was no God, then their foolish hearts became darkened. The psalmist said on two different occasions, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Amen. So Paul lines up with that and says that their foolish hearts have become darkened. Amen. They, they've denied God, and the foolishness of denying God has become a spiritual affliction on humanity, particularly in the heart of man. Their heart has become darkened because they rejected God, because they turned their back on the light of the truth of God, they're now relegated to walk in darkness. They walk in darkness. Their darkened hearts lead them. So the next step in that progression, all of this is reviewed from the last several weeks, this being last week. The next step in that progression is the step to idolatry. God, in his graciousness, in his power, in his majesty, and in his authority, holds humanity to a higher moral standard. God's not like a man. He exists in a whole different realm. His righteousness is beyond reproach. His goodness is beyond our grasp. His sense of justness is far beyond anything that man can comprehend. And the standard of morality that God holds, a standard of righteousness that God holds man to, is birthed in God's holy nature. He demands of man that man live a life that is marked by God's standard of righteousness, by God's standard of what is good, of what is right, of what is pure, of what is holy, of what man ought to be. When men reject God, we said this last week, because it is innate, it is born into man, it is, it is part of man's being. Man was created to be a worshiper. We are religious beings. And whenever we displace God from that throne in our life, ultimately we put something else on that throne. And when men create gods, they begin to create their own gods. Man was made in the image of God. Man was made by God in God's own image. But God was always above man. God is always on another realm. God is always calling man to a higher place. His ways, his thoughts, his standards, always above and beyond ours. But when men create gods, they make them in their own image. God made man in his image. When men make gods with a lowercase g, they make them in their image. They make gods that resemble their flaws. They make gods that resemble their inconsistencies. They make gods who 
display their own sinful tendencies. They make things to worship that make them feel better about their own fallen condition. Man, out of his darkened heart, creates gods that are subject to that darkness. So God is constantly calling men to another level. He's constantly calling men to come out of darkness and walk in the marvelous light of the truth that is God. But men instead create idol gods whose nature reflects the darkness that they're living in. This way they don't have to feel guilty about the way they live. This way they don't have to feel guilty about the darkness that pervades their life. This way, there's no challenge to improve upon their spiritual condition. They can still stay spiritually depraved. They can still appease their guilty heart by worshiping a false God that has the same flaws that they have. If you ever studied mythology in school, you discovered that the Romans and the Greeks made gods who acted like men. They made gods who lusted. They made gods who murdered. They made gods who made war against each other. They made gods who had all the vices of humanity. All of it's present in the moral structure of mythology. That isn't an accident. That happened by design. Because when men make gods to worship, they make gods that appease their own sense of who they are. When men want to be lustful, they make gods who are lustful. When men want to walk in darkness, they make gods who make it okay to walk in darkness. So when man chose to supplant the image of God, he done it with a lie. He got rid of the reality of God and he put in God's place a lie. He, he chose to try to erase the call to a higher standard of living, to try to erase the call to righteousness and godliness and holiness. Instead, he would placate his own foolish, darkened sense of morality, his own dark heart. So man began to worship what man created. They place the creation over the creator. That's the next step downward on this spiral, this progressive spiral of sin. Idols was the next step. First, they rejected the knowledge of God. Then they, they created idols. And then idols, see, idols can't speak. Idols can't Right, They cannot espouse a revelation of righteousness. And so once man creates idols, idols are just made with man's hands. They have ears that can't hear. They have eyes that can't see. They have mouths that cannot speak. And the worship of them doesn't lead to a code of a godly moral standard of life. And so they supplant that with a man-made moral standard of life a man-made code of what is right and what is good and what is godly. And so man crafts the code of morality associated with idolatry to permit and even promote his own vices. That's why the Greek gods, the Roman gods, and the gods of a multitude of other cultures that they didn't cause you to, didn't have you to study in high school all 
They all promote the vices that are common to humanity. Ultimately, with no God-given revelation, idolatry leads to immorality. Ultimately, idolatry, idolatry leads to man setting his own standard of what is right and what is wrong, and that is the next step in the downward progression. What we'll see as the remainder of this chapter unfolds is that the willful choice to deny the truth about God may have been a spiritual choice, but ultimately it manifests itself in the physical realm. It impacts the way men think, and it impacts the way men act, and it sets in motion the downward spiral of sin. Now, I first thought that I'd take this remainder of the chapter and maybe do it in one lesson. I was overreaching. Uh, at the very best, we're going to get it done in three lessons. Uh, we're going to deal with it in three segments. The first segment just involves the first two verses. Uh, it begins this way, and in, in our text being chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forevermore, amen, or forever, amen. So verse 24 begins with a phrase, wherefore God also gave them up. What we'll see is that that phrase is repeated, repeated three times in this final segment of Romans chapter 1, and that's how I'm breaking it up if you're trying to find the design. and it's, it's with that phrase because each of the remaining lessons from this chapter will begin with that declaration. God gave them up, and each time it denotes uh, an escalation. Each time it represents another step in that progression of sin. Each time... Paul begins by referencing what he has already said, what has already happened, the things that have led us to this point, and says that's what takes us to the next step. Wherefore, God gave them up. Now, the wherefore, the uh, therefore refers to what's happened before. So we know how we got to where we are because of what we've already discussed, because of the fact that they rejected and suppressed the truth of God, because they replaced God with the idols, as a result of all of that, God gives them up. To give them up means to hand them over. It means gave up literally means to give into the hands of another or to give over into one's power or use. In this case, God gives them over to the power of sin. Since men choose, they, they chose to, to give up God, they chose to give up the, the knowledge of God and, and instead they chose to worship the creature instead of the creator. God could do nothing more than give them up to the control of the sinful things that they preferred over God. They chose to give up God and so God chooses to give them up to what they have freely chosen. In other words, God will not violate man's will. 
God will not force man to worship him. God will not force man to do something he doesn't want to do. And so when men persist in following their totally depraved, sinful nature, God allows them. He gives them up to that which they have pursued. He gives them free reign to go ahead and do what it is that they have desired to do. So he gave them the freedom that they desired. He removed any barrier to sin. He removed any inhibition that might have been there against what they were doing. He allowed them the freedom to pursue their heart's desire. Now make no mistake about it. God gave them freedom. But this is a freedom to submit themselves to bondage. This is the freedom to place themselves in the bonds of servitude to the flesh. They think that by rejecting God, they have rejected a demanding deity. They think that by rejecting God, they've rejected the call to live higher, to live righteous, to live godly. But what they do not realize is that by subjecting themselves to the whims and desires of their flesh, they have submitted themselves to a cruel taskmaster to a taskmaster that is never satisfied, to one that will always take them further than they wanted to go, one that will always keep them longer than they wanted to stay, one that will always cost them more than they wanted to pay. These people have already turned their back on God. They've already suppressed the truth about God. They chose to worship idols instead of God. So now God hands them over to their choice. God hands them over to their free will. God in his wisdom left them to their own self-determined self-destruction. They decided what would destroy them. And all God done was release them to their decision. Notice that God isn't at this point actively judging their sins. He is, however, turning them over to the consequence of their sins. And the consequence is of their own making. The judgment for sin at this point will be the bondage to sin that they willingly choose. God doesn't have to visit judgment upon them for their choice. Their choice is leading them to bondage. Their choice is leading them to submission to the cruel taskmaster of sin. And that is in and of itself a judgment of their own making. They're creating their own judgment. The further they go into sin, the more it will impact them. And the harder it will be for them to bear the changes that sin brings about in humanity. Sin will make demands of them that they're not prepared to answer. Sin will exact a toll upon them that they don't have the resources to satisfy. Sin is a demanding taskmaster. It'll take them places that they haven't yet begun to imagine and bondage to sin is a judgment in and of its own right. And it's a judgment that they chose and that God released them to. You've got to understand this about sin. It separates man from God. Sin drives a wedge in between humanity and deity. 
it perverts man's sense of morality. It perverts man's sense of righteousness. You can't just dabble with sin and walk away from it without bearing the results of your encounter with sin. Proverbs asks the rhetorical question, can a man take a fire unto his bosom and not be burned? What he's saying is you can't simply sin and walk away unscathed any more than a man can pick up hot coals of fire and hold them to his chest and walk away unaffected. Sin affects you. You may think you get away with it. You may think nobody knows about it. You may think that you're skating around the edges, that you're dodging the raindrops, but listen, my friends, sin always has an effect on you. It always impacts you. You can't simply sin and then walk away unscathed any more than a man can pick up fire and not be burned. Sin will exact a price. Sin will affect you, and sin will do you more harm than it will do you good. Make no mistake about it. Sin appeals to your sense of pleasure. It thrives on the momentary satisfaction of some ungodly urge that is birthed in your own heart. You choose it, and you choose it because you've convinced yourself that that which God calls evil is good. And for a moment, there's pleasure there, but there's a dark underside to sin. Ultimately, it does more harm to you than you could ever begin to imagine. It costs you psychologically, it costs you spiritually, and it will cost you physically before it is done with you. The wages of sin, the Bible says, ultimately is death. It's an expensive thing. So what God does here is simple, really. He removes the restraints against sin. He allows them the freedom that they have demanded. But freedom to sin actually results in bondage to sin. It is the very freedom that man desires that results in the bondage that man despises. Humanity cast off the knowledge of God, cast off that call to a higher level of living, cast off that call to righteousness because it didn't want to be subject to a higher power. But in the in the end, as a result, it allows itself to become enslaved to the insatiable appetite of sin. And that's the point of the remainder of this chapter. Man's downward spiral into sin is man's own self-made punishment for sin. I believe there's a higher purpose at work here. I believe that God's got, there's more going on here than is immediately recognized in the text. Man has rejected God. And God turns man over to the natural progression of that rejection. What you have to understand here is that God loves man. And God loves his creation. He loves humanity. And God's ultimate desire is the restoration of humanity to fellowship with him. And I believe that whenever God removes the inhibitions, when God gives them over to sin, when God turns them over to the power of sin, as he gives man to all these things we're going to read about in this chapter, I believe he does it in an effort to cause man to come to the place that he recognizes that he needs God. 
that this freedom is really bondage, that this liberty is really uh, being in subjection to a cruel taskmaster, that serving God wasn't nearly as hard as serving the flesh is. And I believe the purpose of the progression is that God is trying to cause man to recognize that he needs God. As a result, as sin escalates, as, as, as the demands of sin escalate, you understand that the worship of idols is eventually going to bring humanity to the place where they sacrifice their own children? The demands of sin is greater than the demand of righteousness. It costs more to them than the demand for holiness. The worship of idols is eventually going to lead them to the absolute horror a bondage to a man-made system of worship. And as sin escalates, as man goes through this progression, as he, as he goes deeper and deeper into this darkness, he's going to recognize that this is a costly choice. It, putting God aside and saying, I'm going to reject the knowledge of God seemed like such an easy thing at the beginning. But at the end of the process, whenever sin takes its toll, whenever the progression takes place, somewhere along the way, man has to recognize this is costing me more than I ever thought it would. It's a costly decision to reject God. And so I believe that God turns them over to the results of their sins in hopes that man will see the error of his way and look to God for mercy. I don't believe God is passive. I don't believe he's a passive part of this process. I believe he's right there every step of the way as he turns man over and as, as sin escalates, as we're going to see in this chapter as it unfolds, I believe that every step of the way God's reaching for the heart of man. I believe that every step of the way he does this and then he gives them over to this and then that, trans, that, that progresses and then he gives them over to the next step and that progresses. And then he, I believe that every step of the way God's holding back judgment and he's reaching out with mercy and with grace and he's allowing sin to put man in a place where he'll once again recognize that he needs the grace of God. Where sin is abundant, my Bible tells me. Grace is even more abundant. And I believe that as sin escalates, grace escalates. I believe that every step of the way, God's reaching. God's trying to get the heart of man. Remember, this started when man rejected God. This started when humanity rejected the knowledge of God. The process that's unfolding in chapter 1 is a result of that rejection. The further that process unfolds, the more of a contrast there is between light and darkness. When they first rejected God, nothing in their life really seemed to change. When they first rejected God, there didn't seem that big, that big of a divide between the world and the church. But the further they go, the more stark the contrast becomes. And the more evident it becomes that they need God. And I believe that's the point of the progression. He goes on and says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. So God gave them over to the lust of their flesh. The first step in this progression from idolatry downward is sexual immorality. When men worship idols, there's no moral code. 
Man is left to do whatever his heart desires. And sin breeds lust in the heart of man. So God gave them over to the lust of their own hearts. It's a sin that originated in their own heart. It's a sin that originated within their own thought process. Without God as a source of morality, they began to indulge in sexual impurity. They dishonored their own bodies. The reference here is to general sexual immorality. Now, in a few verses, we're going to escalate again. God's going to give them over again. And when God gives them over again, we're going to see unnatural sexual activity. But that's not where we are here. This deals with the immoral sexual activity between a man and a woman. Understand that God instituted the the bond of marriage, the union of marriage. God instituted that sacred act. But when sexuality is taken outside of the bonds of marriage, when sexuality is taken outside of the union of marriage, it dishonors God and it dishonors the individuals that take part in it. They have taken an act that God created with spiritual implications and they have turned it into something that it was never meant to be. And they do it in the name of feeling good. They do it in the name of satisfying their fleshly urge. But in the end, it strikes a crippling blow to their own self-image. They dishonor themselves. The idea of casual sex finds its roots in idolatry. I don't know if you realize that. But one of the most shocking discoveries of modern archaeology has been the evidence of unbridled immorality associated with pagan worship. In any culture... The character of the worshipers is a good indicator of the character of the idols that they worship. And men make those gods in their own images. Lust thrives in a sin-filled heart. So men created deities with connections to sexual activity. They created gods that desired illicit sexual activity on the part of the worshipers. Now, it may seem to be a foreign concept to us today. It still exists in certain pagan worship circles, but it doesn't exist in the realm of Christianity. And this is the Bible Belt, and we don't see a whole lot of that kind of stuff. But Paul's writing this letter to Rome. And in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire, there are temples that are dedicated to the worship of deities that require sexual immorality to satisfy them. There are temple prostitutes that are there just so that men and women can give themselves to them sexually in hopes that their prayer will be answered. It's what activated their worship of that deity. So sexual activity was deemed to be necessary to satisfy this man-made God. Let me stress, this is a man-made God. It's a God made the image of man. It's an idol that men created to satisfy their own depraved sense of what they wanted to do. And in the name of religion, they engage in sexual immorality. So Paul makes the point. The next logical step from idolatry is sexual immorality. Idolatry is what leads men to break down their inhibitions about sex and perform those acts in a meaningless union out of a misguided effort to satisfy some powerless deity. The casual attitude about sex and sexuality that exists in that kind of culture in the temples of idolatry eventually spills out of the temple and into the hearts and minds and souls of the very men and women of that society. 
the result of their actions is that they're thinking about sex has changed. They're thinking about that union has changed. It's that darkness. Now we're going. We're going to get a lot. This is. It may seem uncomfortable to stand behind a pulpit on a Sunday morning and talk about sex. It's going to get worse. This is just the first step in this progression. This is this is this is the small stuff. We're headed for the worst stuff. But they're thinking about sex changes. See, God created man and woman for a union. And that union is instituted by God. It's the, it's not just it's 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 the treasure of marriage. It's the way we procreate, but it's the treasure of marriage. And sin takes that treasure and defiles it and dishonors it and takes it outside of that union and makes it meaningless, takes a spiritual, an act with spiritual connotations and makes it into the casual, mundane, everyday, everything. Now the debate isn't whether or not you can have sex before you're married. The debate is whether or not you can have sex on the first date. It takes it out of the context of that which is holy and sacred and puts it into the context with that which is normal and casual. And so that casual attitude about sex gets into the heart and the mind of man. And over time, all the inhibitions against sexual activity begin to break down. After all, if my religion says that I should engage in acts of sex with strangers at the temple so that God will be satisfied, then what's to say I can't engage in those acts wherever I want to, with whomever I want to, under whatever circumstances I want to? It breaks down the very thought process that sex is a holy thing. It's a godly thing. It is a righteous thing. I know it seems to be a bad word in a Victorian type of culture, but it's, it's something God gave to humanity in the bonds of marriage. I, I taught a lot of youth classes on, on waiting for their spouse, worth the wait, and the idea that it's it's something holy and righteous. And I always told young people, gasoline's a good thing, right? We would agree. I can't get to Little Rock this afternoon unless I've got gasoline in the van. It's what gets us down the road. But you take gasoline out of the confines of that motor vehicle and that, that makes it productive, and it becomes a very dangerous thing. It just the very fumes from gasoline can ignite. And I know people who have been very badly burned not because they set gasoline on fire, but because they were. I, I know a man that was cleaning motorcycle parts in a in a in a utility room, and and the fumes. He's washing them in gasoline. The fumes. One of the hot water heater kicked on, ignited, burned him very very badly. Amen. Gasoline outside of the confines of what it's productive for becomes a dangerous thing. Sex is the same way. God made it. God instituted it. It's a part of marriage. It was a part of the union between a man and a woman. You get it outside of those confines and it becomes dangerous. It tears down the very culture of humanity. So the end result is that they dishonor their bodies between themselves. When two people engage in casual sex outside of marriage, they dishonor their own body. And they dishonor the body of the person that they're engaging in that sexual act with. They don't just dishonor themselves. They dishonor the person that they are engaged with. Even in today's culture, 
even with our culture that has very, a very loose moral code regarding sex and sexuality, it is still understood that an individual who engages in a lifestyle that results in multiple sexual partners has no respect for themselves, has no respect for their own body. That's what Paul said. They dishonor themselves. It demonstrates they don't value themselves. It demonstrates they don't value the treasure that God has given them in their own body. And there we see in part the unintended consequence of their sin. Not only does it change their thinking about sin or about sex, but it changes the way they perceive themselves. It degrades their own image of themselves. It tears them down. They dishonor their own bodies. And by so doing, they step another step lower in the spiritual, downward spiritual spiral. Let me go to verse 25. It says, Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. They exchanged the truth of God for the supreme lie, the worship. They, they traded the truth about the knowledge of God for the lie that the worship of the creator, creator could be replaced by the worship of the creature, that something or someone could take God's place, that they rejected the knowledge of God, they rejected who he was, and then they traded that truth, and they had that truth. We started with the understanding way back. They had this knowledge. They had this truth, but they rejected it, and they replaced it with a lie. They replaced it with the lie that something else or someone else could take God's place in their life. The lie that they could placate their desire to worship God with something temporal and shallow, something that was just a substitute. And what they didn't realize was that the desire to worship God would never be satisfied by anything other than the worship of God. There's a God-sized hole in your heart. God built you. He made you to worship him. And temporary substitutes will never satisfy that desire. They'll always leave you empty and broken with the ever-present insatiable desire to find something new to put into that void to try to satisfy it because you'll try this and it doesn't work. And then you'll try that and it doesn't work. And then you'll try something else. That's the progressive nature of sin. It takes you further and further away from God as you search for something that you're never going to find away from God to satisfy the need to worship God. And it pushes you further and further away from him and it never ever satisfies that desire that is in your heart. It was a wretched exchange. They traded truth for a lie and it led them to serve creative things rather than the creator. They've replaced God with inferior things. They replaced God with stuff that God made. And that stuff will never satisfy the craving of their soul. So they're left to carry on a hollow, empty, futile search for something to satisfy them that they'll never find apart from God. And that's what leads us to the next step of progression that we'll get into next week. But Paul concludes this way. He stops. 
in the middle of all this uncomfortable talk about sin and, and, and rejecting the knowledge of God and the downward progression of, of sin, Paul stops and interjects a statement of praise to God. God has been rejected in this exchange of truth for a lie. That, that word exchange has to do with bartering. It's the language of trade. They traded God for these substitutes. They exchanged the truth about God for these other things. And Paul wants to stop right there and make it known that God is blessed forever. Paul's prone to do this from time to time. He gets in these heavy subjects and the Holy Ghost moves upon him. He's riding under the inspiration of the anointing of God and all of a sudden he's overcome by the need to worship God. He puts it right into what he's writing. Amen. He puts it right into what he's recording. And so he wants it, he wants it known. As he's writing about the progression of sins, he's writing about how men have degraded the very truth of God into a lie, how they perverted their own religious nature to worship the creature instead of the creator. He feels the compulsion to make it known that he worships the one true God, that he worships the one who is blessed forevermore. The whole of the world may be guilty of trading, of exchanging the truth about God for a lie, but he wants it known. I haven't made that exchange. I'm not a, a part to that agreement I worship God he is blessed forever he wants it known beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is not of that number he will praise God regardless of what anybody else is doing he'll praise God regardless about what anybody else is saying he will praise God would you stand with me I think that's a good place to conclude this morning Sin has a devastating effect on the heart of man. But the worship of God has a tremendous ability to reverse the effect of sin. Sin tears man down. Sin destroys what God has made in man. Sin has a negative impact on man and who man is. But the worship of God reverses that effect. The worship of God brings man back into fellowship with God. The worship of God brings man back into that place where God can move in his life. And in just a few moments, in the presence of God, all the effects of sin can be healed as we worship him. Brother Ryan, would you come? I want to ask you this morning, Sunday morning, if we would just take the time to worship him for just a moment. We've heard a lot about the progression of sin. We've heard a lot, and we will hear more about the, the, the terrible things that man turns to to replace the image of God in their heart and in their minds. And we've, we've gotten into some of those subjects. But for the next few moments, could we just clear our minds and clear our hearts? Could you lift your hands? And would you worship him? He 